in your Bibles this evening. So you might like to turn to Matthew chapter 23 again. Thank you, Tally, for reading that section. But I'm going to read verse 13 again, which is what we're going to be focusing on tonight. Uh, so Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13, page 992 in the church Bibles. And Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now, I'm sure you don't use the word woe very much in your everyday life. But when we do use the word woe, we usually mean by it troubles. In a conversation with someone last week, they said to me, enough of my woes. You don't want to hear any more of my troubles. And sometimes in the Bible, it carries that idea. But more usually, as we've seen, as we've thought already, it's not a reference to troubles that someone is currently experiencing. Rather, it's an expression of trouble that is yet to come. Trouble is on the way. Trouble is coming as a result of God's judgment against sinful behavior. And usually, that judgment is imminent. It's going to happen soon. And in that sense, it's a stern warning that requires immediate attention. It's not something to put on your to-do list sometime in the distant future. Now, oftentimes the Old Testament prophets declared woes of judgment on the surrounding nations. God wasn't going to overlook their immorality, their injustice, or their idolatry any longer. God's judgment is about to fall, and it's going to happen soon. And God of God's people responded, Amen. Just right to preach it, brother, judgment on the nations. But then sometimes a shocking thing happened. Rather than declaring judgment on the nations, God's prophets deliver a message of woe to God's people. Well, hold on a minute. Aren't we God's people? Isn't God supposed to be on our side? Well, no. As God's people, God is not supposed to be on your side. You are supposed to be on his side. And that's something very different. You see, when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they entered into a covenant with God, an agreement God would bring them into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And if they obeyed the Lord their God, they would enjoy peace in the land. They would have bountiful harvests. They would have everything that they needed. But if they forgot the Lord their God and turned after other gods, well, God would bring judgment upon them. God would withhold the rain. Their harvest would not be plentiful. They would experience famine in the land. And if they still refused to listen to the voice of God, he would allow surrounding nations to invade the land. 
These were covenant blessings and curses. It was part of the agreement, like a lease on a property. They could live in God's land so long as they obeyed God's laws. But if they ignored the covenant, God's prophets would deliver an eviction notice. And it wouldn't be long before the bailiffs would be knocking on their door. Now, that's a helpful way for us to think about the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and the woes of Matthew 23, blessings and curses. But now it's no longer about living in the land of Canaan. It's about the greater thing that the land of Canaan pointed forward to, where God's people would live in right relationship with the Lord their God and enjoy his blessing forever. It's about entrance into and exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. And just as the prophets sometimes delivered woes that shocked the people of God, Jesus is about to deliver a message where that would shock the phylacteries right off the Pharisees' foreheads. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shot the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. You see, doors are primarily, are not primarily for keeping people out. They're for letting people in. Now, of course, a shop locks their doors at night, but first thing in the morning, the doors are open, the lights are turned on so that people can come in. John Calvin writes these words, what are religion and sacred instruction for but to open the gates of heaven? That's the very nature of the gospel. Every time the gospel is preached, we announce that the gates of heaven are open like a shop that turns on the lights and puts up a sign on the door that says, we're open, come in, you're welcome. Now, the doors of the kingdom of heaven are open because of the obedience of Jesus. Now, that may not be the first answer that you think of or the first answer that springs to mind. Maybe you would be expecting me more to say that it's because of the death of Jesus. We often rush to the death of Jesus. But for the death of Jesus to achieve anything, he first had to be obedient. He had to live the perfect human life, what you and I were supposed to be. Jesus needed to love the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus needed to obey the will of his Father in heaven. If the death of Jesus was to achieve anything, he first needed to live a life of perfect obedience to God. Because Jesus alone meets the demands of the covenant. You see, where we feel, where the nation of Israel feels, Jesus succeeds. In fact, if we read the Gospel of Matthew carefully, Matthew's been trying to tell us that 
from the very beginning. Maybe you come across that strange verse at the beginning of Matthew in some of your Christmas services. Herod is wanting to kill Jesus. Joseph takes his family and flees to Egypt. And only after Herod's death do they return to Nazareth. Matthew writes in chapter 2 and verse 15 about Jesus. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's about Israel. Not about Jesus. What is Matthew wanting us to see? He's wanting us to see that Jesus is stepping into the shoes of his son Israel so that where Israel failed, Jesus might succeed. We just go on a couple of chapters in Matthew. After Jesus is baptized, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, chapter 4 and verse 1. His wilderness experience lasts for how long? 40 days. Thank you. I did say I wasn't going to make you do any more work, but I've just realized I might. 40 days. Does the number 40 sound familiar? Well, yes, it's meant to remind us of something else. How the nation of Israel were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. But there's a big difference, isn't there? Where Israel fails to trust God their father, this son Jesus trusts him completely. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. You'd go to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus goes up on a mountainside, just like Moses went up the mountain of Sinai to receive God's law. But rather than returning with a list of conditions that must be met to continue to live in God's land, Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven is open for needy people, the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, how is that even possible? It's because Jesus meets the demands of the covenant resulting in blessing for all who trust him. Think about the blessings of Matthew chapter 5. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The obedience of Jesus meets the demands of the covenant, resulting in blessing for all who trust him. But remember, there are two sides to the covenant, blessings and curses. And failure to keep the covenant resulted in the judgment of God. And we are lawbreakers, not covenant keepers. We deserve the curses of the covenant, not the blessings. But the curse that we deserved fell on Jesus instead of us. The curse that should have excluded us from God's presence fell on him instead of us. And the blessings that he deserved because of his obedience are simply given to those who trust him. Well, how incredible is that? 
How wonderful is that? Well, not to everyone, it seems. Not a few think that doors are primarily for keeping people out rather than letting people in. We're still in the very early stages of getting used to having a security alarm on our house. It hasn't gone smoothly. I think we set it off three times in the first week, twice opening the windows while the alarm was still set, and once for not realizing we had to put a different code in if we were planning on staying inside than going outside. Security was not a high priority in West Cork. But for the Pharisees, security was high priority. Even their name means the separated ones. Now, it's not clear if that's a name they chose for themselves or a nickname that others gave it to them, like Holy Joes. But whichever it was, their priority was to live a holy life that fulfilled the demands of the covenants. They were the pure people of God, the true Israel, those who hadn't defiled themselves by living like the other nations who lived among them. They were the self-appointed security guards of God's kingdom. They decided who was in and who was out. And you could be certain that no sinner was going to get near the door. Now listen again to Jesus' words in verse 13. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter. Rather than being on the inside, they will find themselves on the outside. Now, I wonder if you've ever locked yourself out of the house or the car. A long time ago on one occasion when this was still possible, I locked the keys in the car with the engine still running. That was really embarrassing. And everyone who came along asked me the same question. How did you manage to do that? How is it that the Pharisees, of all people, have found themselves on the outside of the kingdom that they're trying to protect? Well, quite simply, it's because they too have failed to keep the demands of the covenant and they're refusing to trust Jesus, the king of the covenant. The king has come reclaimed what is rightfully his, has changed the locks and evicted the tenants. The people who thought they were most entitled to the kingdom find themselves on the outside simply because they refuse to trust Jesus, the king of the kingdom. Now, what a warning that is to those among us who think that somehow the kingdom of heaven is something that we have a right to. That because of a good life that we have lived, or bad things that we didn't do, that because we belong to a church, or that we weren't like other people, that we somehow have a right to the kingdom of heaven. 
because no one, absolutely no one, has met the demands of the covenant except for Jesus, and there's no way in without trusting in him. But things are even worse than that. Look again at verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. It's not simply that they refuse to come to Jesus. They're actively hindering others from coming to Jesus. I don't know if at some time you've been involved in industrial action, a strike. Your union has consulted its members who voted to walk out and refuse to work. Well, I was only ever involved in one set of strikes in my very early days of teaching. I have to say that even now I'm still conflicted about it, but nevertheless, I joined my colleagues on the picket line at the school entrance. Well, it was the softest picket line that you have ever seen. We stood in the driveway of the secondary school holding placards that the union had provided for us. But as soon as a colleague arrived who belonged to a different union, well, we very quickly moved out of the way, smiled and waved. And even on occasion, they would roll down the window and have a chat before they went in to work for the day. We were ill-prepared for serious industrial action. But I still remember as a child of about 10 or 11, watching the news of the year-long miner strike in the UK in the mid-1980s. Well, that was something altogether different to our teacher's picket line. Whole families' livelihoods were at risk. Picket lines were anything but soft, and there was nothing worse than being a scab who crossed the picket line. Not only did they refuse to work, they wouldn't let those who were trying to. And if you did, you were an outcast within your community. Now, that is what Jesus is accusing the Jewish religious leaders of doing. It's one thing that they refuse to come to Jesus, that they don't recognize Jesus as their promised king and submit to his rule, but it's another thing entirely to erect a spiritual and societal picket line that hindered others from coming to Jesus. And that's exactly what they are doing. And it may be something that some of you actually experienced of how difficult it was to cross that line to trust in Jesus when a society or community or group of friends would make you feel excluded, that you no longer belonged. By keeping people from Jesus, they're keeping people from the kingdom 
of heaven. They shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. They themselves do not enter, nor will they let those who are trying to. And as a result, God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is imminent. It's not going to be long in coming. This is a stern warning that requires immediate attention, not something to put on that to-do list sometime in the distant future. Now, Matthew's told us all that, not so that we all sit here this evening and agree how terrible were those Pharisees. But he tells it because we can be guilty of the same behavior. Do you remember that story earlier in Matthew 19? Jesus had to rebuke his own disciples for turning away people who were trying to bring their children to Jesus. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The disciples of Jesus were just as capable as the Pharisees of hindering people from coming to Jesus. And so are we. So here's a question I want us to think about as we finish. Are there ways in which we hinder people from coming to Jesus? Because if we do, we shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. I'm going to suggest just three ways that we might hinder people from coming to Jesus. I'm sure there are more, and it would be worthwhile you thinking in what other ways this happens. The first one, an inconsistent lifestyle. There are few things that I've heard non-Christians refer to more that puts them off the Christian faith than Christians who, as we thought about last week, say all the right things about God, but are a terrible example of living for God. Their lifestyle is full of inconsistencies that are not only obvious to the non-Christian, but obnoxious to the non-Christian. Speech that is unkind or untrue, selfishness and self-interest, pride and arrogance, an inconsistent lifestyle can hinder others coming to Jesus. Way number two, a gospel silent lifestyle. Maybe you're living a consistent Christian life. Of course, like the rest of us, there are areas of struggle and failure, but you want to serve God, you want to please God, but at the same time, you're absolutely silent about the gospel. You operate on the assumption that your work colleagues, well, they're not interested in spiritual things. Your friends at school would only laugh at you if you talked about your Christian faith. And the other students at your college are resistant to any mention of God at all. 
So what do you do? Well, you keep your head down. You stay silent. You play it safe. Others don't know you're a Christian. Or if they do, they think that being a Christian simply means being a good person. They've never heard even the slightest hint of gospel explanation from you. We can hinder other people from coming to Jesus by simply living a gospel silent lifestyle. Third one I thought of, and as I said, I'm sure there are more, an exclusive or unwelcoming lifestyle. There's nothing worse, is there, than feeling like you don't fit in or that you're not welcome. Now, there can be all kinds of reasons for that, maybe things to do with our past experience or our current circumstances. But sometimes it's quite simply because we get the message loud and clear from other people that we're simply not welcome. How awful it is when someone's seeking Jesus finds the behavior of God's people says loud and clear, you don't belong here. We don't have room for you here. The Pharisees were experts at it, but I'm pretty sure that we as Christians come a very close second at times. I hope it's your desire to see others enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm certain that you don't want to hinder others from coming to Jesus. So rather than shutting the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, let's be those who turn on the lights and put up the sign that says, it's open, you're welcome, come in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the King of the kingdom has come and that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We confess that too often we've seen the church as something that exists only for us with little thought of those on the outside. But we pray that you might help us to learn to watch out for others and to welcome others as Jesus welcomed the most unlikely of people to seek him. We know too well the temptation to remain silent at work and in school and in college, even in friendships. But may we learn to watch out for God given opportunity to share even a simple truth about the gospel. And we're aware of areas of our lives that are actually where we're aware of areas of our lives that are actually turning people away from Jesus rather than drawing others towards him. Help us to recognize those areas, to turn from them, to confess our sin, and to seek to live in a way that pleases you. We pray for Life Explored starting this week. We thank you for the opportunity to turn on the lights, to put up the sign, and to say, the kingdom of heaven 
is open. You're welcome. Why don't you come in? And may some even in these week ahead hear the call of the Lord Jesus and come in, we pray. Amen.